Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt, if you don't know me, and uh, today we are continuing on in our uh, series on Luke that we started last week. And uh, before we do, let's spend some time praying this morning. Jesus, uh, this morning, we just want to give thanks for all the work that you're up to in us and among us that we see that we don't see. Thanks for Angela's uh, testament of faith and desire to, to walk in the waters of baptism. We pray you'd bless her for it. We pray that you would just come and fall spirit fresh on her. And Lord, in the same way, we pray for all of us that the spirit of the living God, you come and fall fresh on us. We remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is the Spirit of the living God. Would you come and fall fresh in freedom? We pray that whatever is entangling us and tripping us up, like Hebrews talks about, that you'd bring freedom to that. You'd help us to walk instead, just fully able to be with you. So thanks uh, for the reminder that Ben gave us that you are always, always pursuing us. You are good, you are kind, and uh, we trust you implicitly. As we open up the scriptures this morning, we pray that you'd come and that you'd speak. We remember your words. Uh, well, actually, Peter's words in response to you, where else we go, only your words bring everlasting life. And so we want to hear words of everlasting life this morning. And so whatever you want to say, Jesus, we give you the floor. Amen. So this morning, like I said, we are continuing in our series in Luke. And uh, the reason we do this, the reason why we come to the scriptures week in and week out is because we know God has revealed himself in an incredible way through them. The scriptures are a gift where God has said, this is a way that I'm going to intervene in human history to talk about who I am and how I work in the world. And part of the thing that uh, we do around here is that we're about fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. And so if that's the truth about who we want to be, then we have to figure out who Jesus is, like Wade talked about last week. There's lots of ways that we can understand Jesus to be, how we think he moves, what we think he's up to, the stories we're told about who he is. But we don't want to settle for secondhand understanding. Instead, we want to get to know the real Jesus. And so we're going to spend a disproportionate amount of time in Luke. We'll see where we get uh, and how long we get there. But uh, we're going to spend time over these next months or years or who knows, uh, walking through Luke. And it's a gift. It's a gift to get to meet Jesus again and again. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus is constantly revealing himself. This is the kind of God we serve, the God who wants to be known, the God who wants to know us. We want to learn what it means to be with him, to be like him and do what he does. Because as his apprentices, that's our three goals. To be people who are with him, first of all. Jesus is a God who wants to be with you. He's not distant. He's not far away. Instead, what we read about in Scripture is Jesus is the God who's constantly getting closer to us. And so as we apprentice with him, we do that together. And then we discover what he's like in the process of being with him. He transforms us to be more like him. And then he invites us, and we're going to see this over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, to do what he does. A bit more context for Luke, like Luke, or like we talked about last week, Luke is an ancient biography written by a guy named Luke. Surprise, surprise. 
Uh, Luke was a doctor. He was also the only Gentile author, as far as we can tell, of a, a scripture book. So somebody who wasn't Jewish. And the unique flavors that come out of that, um, which we'll talk about a bit later, is that the Gentiles are mentioned and no one more. And the, the gospel is so much bigger um, in scope, it seems, when you read Luke, because he's inviting people in that perhaps didn't feel invited in Matthew's account or Mark's account because they were primarily written for a Jewish audience. And so that's some of the, the space to catch up with. Um, one more thing that you might have noticed is, even though we started Luke last week with Luke chapter 1, Erica read out of Luke chapter 3, we do know how to count. It wasn't a mistake. Instead, uh, if you were here over Advent, we did Luke 1 and 2 preemptively. And so if you're wondering what happened there, maybe you weren't here for Advent in December, you can go back on our podcast or YouTube and check out those sermons. And there's the preamble. So, Erica started with, uh, and we'll get the text here, uh, this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So if you were here uh, back in December, uh, on Christmas Eve specifically, we read through uh, chapter uh, 2 where it talks about Jesus' birth. And when we do that, you'll remember it was in the days of who was Caesar. Think of Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. You have to read through the Bible. Your dad's going very slowly through it. In the days of Caesar blank, an issue was decreed that a census should be taken. Caesar Augustus. This is not Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar. He's a different person. He's actually uh, Caesar's, Augustus's stepson. And so what this tells us is that in these years in between, uh, probably about 30 years, uh, there has been a power shift in Rome. No longer is Augustus ruling, but now it's his stepson. And Tiberius succeeded Augustus in 14 AD um, and then ruled to 39 AD. Uh, so let's get a map of Tiberius' rule here, because you guys all love maps, as I do. Um, all the coolest people love looking at maps. <laughs> so all the yellow is what Caesar ruled. And uh, Tiberius had, had made the kingdom get a bit bigger. Um, and so if this is the 15th rule of Tiberius, then we're guessing this is somewhere between 28 and 29 AD. Unless the social media tells me the men in this room think about the Roman Empire a disproportionate amount of time, then you'll know that Tiberius and Augustus co-emperored for a while. Everybody here is, of course, familiar with that, right? So uh, they co-emperored between 11 and 12. They started and they ruled until 14 together. And so some people think maybe this should be dated more at about 26. Um, but then maybe you're like, hey, Matt, what about the Syrian calendar? Because this is happening in Syria. And the Syrian calendar would put this at 27. All this to say, nerds talk about dating of these things and have different ways of looking at it. I find it interesting. I know most of you don't. But all this tells us is this story happened at a time, and the time that we can best tell is it was probably about 27, 28, or 29 AD. This is a real story in a real time. And in this real story in a real time, there is an emperor named Tiberius who's in charge of most of the known world. But then Luke continues, so we're going to focus in on this part called Syria over here on the, the eastern edge. So this is the map of what our story. For this whole book, we are going to stay in this space here. So even though the power vacuum of Rome tells us something, this is what's going on now for the rest. So Luke continues on, and he says, uh, when Pilate was a governor of Judea, or, or the governor of Syria, sorry. Now, it's a name, uh, lost you remember, um, is, he's known in the rest of the gospel. 
Uh, but when Herod the Great, who we've re reread about earlier in Luke, uh, died, his kingdom was separated between his sons. And uh, the kingdom of Judea and Edomia and uh, Samaria the, on the western side here was all given to his son Archelaus, who uh, you haven't heard of because, well, Rome didn't like him. He was a bad ruler. He uh, ended up wiping out like 3,000 people as one of his first acts. Um, and surprisingly, Rome didn't like that, so they got rid of him. And they replaced him with governors. And in 26, a guy named Pontius Pilate became the governor of the region. He was described by the ancient writer Philo as being naturally inflexible and ruthless. He was sure to make sure the Jews knew that Rome was in charge. And he rammed it down their throats whenever he could, including his first act, having statues and flags and all sorts of religious imagery of Rome being put up around the temple and the holy city. You can imagine how that went down. It led to a revolt. David Garland uh, said Pilate liked to ram down Roman rules down their throat. And it led to the people wanting to constantly fight him. So that's that part. So we have Pontius Pilate. Next we have Herod Antipas, who's a tetrarch of Galilee. Galilee is just north in the pink up there. Galilee is where Jesus performed most of his miracles. This is Jesus' home area. And this is uh, one of uh, Herod's sons. We'll find about more about him with John the Baptist later on in the next coming weeks. What we know about him is he ruled from Galilee from 4 to 39. And uh, he fights with John the Baptist later. Uh, next, we have Philip, who's a tetrarch of Eritrea and Trachonitis. Erica said that way better than I did. Uh, these are these regions uh, in the teal up there. Uh, this Herod, uh, what we know about him is nothing. There's another Herod Philip in the story whose wife Herodias ends up marrying his brother that we just read about. Different Herods, don't get confused there. All we know is he was, that Herod the Great was lazy in naming his sons. Uh, apparently, though, he was the best of Herodian rulers. He got to rule to 34, but he doesn't play into our story. And then we have Lysanias, who's a tetrarch of Abilene. Uh, Abilene is like part, like that little pink over there, I think. It's no big deal. Nobody even knows about this guy. Uh, he was lost to the sands of time. There's been some inscriptions that tell us he existed, but that's about it. So you don't have to worry about his name ever again or how to pronounce it. And then last, we have Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, if you're like me, you're like, wait a second. There should only be one high priest at one time. Luke must have been confused here. Well, Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15, and then he did something to get Valerius Gratus, who was the governor before Pilate. You guys all know the story, of course. I'm joking. Nobody knows the story. Uh, he got uh, Valerius Gratus angry and got removed from his position. And so the high priesthood got passed to his son Caiaphas, um, who ruled from 18 to 37. Uh, the position of high priest was both religious and political in nature and had a bunch of uh, power associated it. And so Caiaphas kind of ruled from behind the scenes like a godfather situation. They were co-rulers, but maybe Caiaphas was the one pulling, the, or sorry, Annas was the one pulling the strings. But this is all to say, all this information, once again, that this story really happened. This story happened in time and space and a place. This isn't uh, like lots of people want to think that Jesus was just a non-historical person, that Jesus didn't really exist, that it's, you know, some myth that was made up. What this tells us is that this all happened in time 
and space and a place. And that's really important to note. Daryl Bach, the commentator, writes that John the Baptist began his ministry in the complex setting. Political Rome, political Israel, and religious Israel all had a stake of affairs in the region. This didn't happen in a vacuum. You have a people who are under the oppression of Rome, both globally and locally. You have people who are being taxed to the hilts, who are being oppressed, and if you don't like it, there's a cross for you to hang off of. This is people looking for good news. And so we continue on in our passage. We read um, this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Stop here again. So John, um, if you haven't been keeping track with Luke so far, is not a random character. He doesn't just appear here. Instead, he's what chapter one is all about. John was given a miraculous birth to his parents who were too old to have a baby. Um, he was born, and then all we know about him is he went and moved into the wilderness. And if you read Mark or Matthew, uh, you'll discover that he liked locusts and honey and uh, wore camel hair. These are the marks of prophet. And sometimes prophets seem like crazy. Read the Old Testament. There's some incredible stuff in there. But like Jesus, he too had a miraculous birth. He was prophesied by the angel to be a prophet like Elijah, who would return the people to God and would prepare the way for Jesus. And so he's out in the wilderness. And it says that the word of God came to him. And if uh, you're not familiar with the scriptures, that's okay. Just so you know, this is like a hyperlink in the text. When it says that the word of God came to somebody. In Jeremiah 3, or 1, chapters 1, or verses 1 to 3, we read these, this, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, king of Ammon, king of Judah, so on and so forth. Do you notice the pattern? In a time where there's a king ruling and the year of the king's rule, the word of the Lord comes to somebody. Or like in Isaiah 38, it says the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord coming is a sign the prophet has given a message. That there's something new that God's up to or something that's not going right in the culture that God wants to change. That kings are off base in the Old Testament. And here it's that God's doing something new and it starts in the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a place uh, that we'll come back to in the next couple of weeks. So keep that in mind. The setting of stories really matters, especially in Luke. Luke just doesn't drop hints for no reason or just to say, hey, oh, this happened here. Luke's telling a deep story. And so in the wilderness, which is a place, um, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, is a place of wandering for the, the Israelites after they leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness for 40 years. And it became this place of reform, this place of being shaped, this place of having to come back to the Lord. The wilderness was also a place where the prophets met God. We read about Moses and the burning bush. In the wilderness, we read about Elijah, who spends time in the wilderness, who also eats weird stuff, but this time it's delivered by ravens. And so we have a prophet in the wilderness, who the word of, the God, the word of God comes to and gives a message. Something deep is happening, here, friends. We read that he then moves from the wilderness along the Jordan rivers, which the Israelites had to cross the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. So why is he at the Jordan River? Well, 
water's here to begin with. And secondly, people are here. He's moved out of the part of the wilderness that's desolate and more into the fertile place. Lot in uh, Jeremiah, or sorry, uh, Genesis 13 talks about uh, the region around uh, the Jordan being like Eden. It's so fertile. So people are here and John starts calling out and it says he's calling for baptism, for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. And so we're familiar with baptism, right? We saw one. If you hadn't been familiar with it, now you are. But have you ever wondered where baptism came from? We're just used to it, right? It's just a thing we do. But if you don't know this, John the Baptist isn't a Christian. John the Baptist didn't grow up in church. John the Baptist wasn't familiar with this. John the Baptist didn't go, oh, this is what we do. Instead, John is doing something here that's a little different. The word baptism uh, comes from the Greek word baptismo, which means to dip or immerse. It's the language of what you do with a cucumber when you put it in a jar and it turns into a pickle. So, Angela, wherever you are, congratulations on getting pickled today. The cucumber is baptismoed and it becomes a pickle. This is what is happening here in the same way when someone is dipped or immersed in the baptism waters, they become something new. In Christian tradition, this is represented with new creation, who we are in Christ. But again, John wasn't a Christian. John's not coming post-cross, post-resurrection, post-sending of the Spirit. This is before. And so there's different questions about what John was up to. There's different things that he could have been about one of which is ceremonial bathing that the high priest had to do before entering the Holy of Holies to purify him from sins. Another idea is the ceremonial washing Jews had to do to become clean again after they had broken the law. And these are two totally viable options, but a third option that I find the most compelling is this. It's called proselyte baptism. And what this was is when somebody, or is, when somebody who's a Gentile becomes a Jewish person and wants to join the Jewish faith, they need to get baptized. They need to get washed clean of idolatry and impurities to restore their purity and become a new person. So again, think of the pickle. They go into the water as a Gentile and they come out as a Jew. Let's think about this context for a few seconds here. If this is the context that John is writing or coming into, and it's a bunch of Jewish people because right now we're in Galilee we haven't, and in Judea. We haven't left Israel yet. So he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people and he's saying, hey, just like the Gentiles need to get baptized, you too do as well. He's calling insiders, outsiders, and saying if you want to become insiders again, which is for everyone now, you need to do what they do. He's saying it's no longer based on your birth like we'll see him talk about next week. If God wants to, he'll raise up sons of Abraham out of the rocks. Instead, it's about your heart. It's about fidelity to God. It's about a relationship with the Lord. And so, if you want to be part of what God's up to, you're going to have to be baptized like they have to be baptized. I wonder what that would have been like. Like, imagine if we came up this morning, it's like, hey, hey, I know lots of you being baptized, but if you want to truly follow Jesus, you have to hop back in the water again. It'd been weird, right? This must have been a strange thing, but at the same time, you have a prophet in the wilderness who's calling for something to happen. And if God's up to something, you go, right? 
So we that John's baptizing a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now we hear the word repentance, and perhaps our mind can go to places, right? Including angry people on street corners yelling at us. Well, the word repent simply means to change direction. It's like you've been walking this way, you've been walking down this broken road that you hope will lead to life, but ends up leading to death. And somebody comes and says, hey, you're actually rock, walk, about to walk off a cliff. This is actually the way you want to go. It's like thinking that life will be found in, you know, success or money or wealth or all sorts of things. And someone comes and says, you know, actually life is found in Jesus. It's about reorientation, about changing your direction. And so John is saying it's time to change direction. You've been thinking life is based on uh, just being children of Abraham and doing whatever you want, or just keeping the rules and missing out on mercy, as we'll find out later on in Luke. And he invites them to instead come to a process of abiding in Christ, or getting ready to do that, I should say. And then God's always in the business of forgiving sins, like in Exodus 33, 34, which I've talked about a lot. This is what God says he does. He forgives sins. This is core to who he is. And so John says, hey, you need to be washed of all of your idolatry that is towards your nation or towards whatever and become clean again. To prepare the way of the Lord. This is why he's here. So we continue on in Luke 34, or 3, 4 to 6. It says, as is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight, the rough ways will be smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So this is from Isaiah. We know this because it says it. This is like one of those handy times where you don't even have to look at the footnote. It just tells you directly in the text. This is coming from before. This is based off a of prophecy Isaiah prophesied. So Isaiah had already told the people, you're going to go into exile. You've been idolatrous. You've uh, taken slaves. You've uh, been unkind to the land and not given it rest. And so God says, I'm going to have to take you off the land unless you change your ways. And so they end up in exile in Babylon, the superpower of the day. But in, even here in Isaiah 40, we read this. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received the Lord's hand, or from Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a, a prophecy of coming home. Your exile is ended. It's time for something. Amen. Right? And then God even says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to lead you the way home. Because coming home to Jesus is coming home. And so then we have language of roads or hills being taken down, roads made better, all sorts of things that reminds us of Edmonton roads and Stony Plain roads in winter and what happens. And it's all language from kings. As if a king was coming to an area, they wanted to make sure that they never tripped or stumbled because that would be awkward and you don't want your king looking foolish. So people would go ahead and get rid of anything on the road that would stand in the way. And so the prophecy here is get the road ready for God. And that prophecy was fulfilled, but the beautiful thing about prophecy is it always has multiple layers. And so John has this other layer that the Lord's coming to his people again. He's up to something new. Now, one more thing, um, and then we'll, we'll be moving towards the table. Uh, this passage is also found in Mark and Luke because these are what are called, uh, to nerds like me, the synoptic gospels. And that means that there's a lot of common ground between them, whereas John, like, 
John's writing off in his own philosophical place way over there, and they're all like, what are you up to, John? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are over here, and chances are Luke, you know how he talks about the sources he used? One of them was probably Mark. But if you could throw this up here. So here's something interesting. In Matthew, we read this passage, this is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark says, it is written, Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now Luke, though, it says, it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, but he doesn't stop. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will become straight, the rough way smooth. And what? And all people will see God's salvation. John is writing, or sorry, Luke is writing to who? Gentiles. He continues on because this is a message for all people. This is deeply significant. We miss it because it's just, you know, there. God's doing something new and it requires all people now. Which for me, as somebody who is not Jewish by birth, this is good news. I don't know about you. God's up to something new. And so what we're going to do over these next few months and years or who knows is we're going to take time to learn what this new thing is. But after all that nerdy explanation of what's going on here, I just have a few questions for us. One of the questions is, what is the fruit of our lives? This is John says to keep fruit in keeping with repentance. What's the fruit of our lives? Is it the religious spirit like Wade talked about last week? Is the extent to the, um, something to the extent of, well, I prayed a prayer of salvation. So I'm good to do whatever I want. The Lord doesn't require anything more of me. Or I've got enough, I got the fire insurance, and now I'm good. And Jesus is like, I have so much more and so much better for you. Don't settle for less. Or is it something to the extent of, well, I've got to keep all the rules and make sure I do everything right, because if I don't, then the Lord will reject me. And so you live in fear of doing the wrong thing. You live in fear of failure. And again, the Lord is like, I've got better for you. I've got perfect love that sends away all fear. Or is it the spirit that is like, well, at least I'm not like them. I do the right thing and they don't. And so it causes us to other, other people. When we look at our lives, what's, what's it producing? I think there's a deep challenge in the call to baptism for those of us, like myself, who've grown up in the church. Mm-hmm that it can be really easy to fall into patterns of years and years of doing the same thing and forgetting it's about so much more than just, you know, I was born into this or I got, I prayed a prayer or something like that or thinking that we have to do the right thing to earn the love of God and he rejects us if we don't. I think Jesus might have better for you. The second question is, what does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? If John's message is all about preparing the way of the Lord, what's standing in your road? 
what broken pathways are you following following that Jesus is like, it's time to make a straight one? What hills are you stuck in? Or valleys are you stuck in? Hills are you struggling to get up that Jesus just wants to smooth out for you? What's tripping you up along the road that Jesus wants to help you with? Preparing of the way of the Lord wasn't just something that happened then, but it's something that we do every day. It's why we pray. It's why we spend time in the scriptures. It's why we come to community every week. is because we want to prepare ourselves to meet with the Jesus who's already meeting with us that we so often are not aware of. And so a question is, what do you need to do to prepare the way of the Lord for yourself? So we have this beautiful gift right now of a season called Lent. Uh, and you got Lent guides as you came in here. Lent is actually a season of preparation. We did not plan this, but it works out perfectly. We'll trust the Lord is up to something. Lent is the season of 40 days before Easter where you get yourself ready for Easter, you get yourself ready to celebrate. And so you go and say, what's tripping me up? What's keeping me from walking in the freedom of Christ? And then entering into that more and more. And so maybe for some of you, the practice of preparing the way of the Lord looks like entering into Lent. For others of you, it might be reading through Luke over and over and over again, discovering who Jesus is and asking Jesus to reveal himself. Maybe it's engaging in new practices like confession or silence and solitude. And then we also need to prepare the way of the Lord for others. Just like John was called to prepare the way for Jesus, there's a bunch of people around us who don't know Jesus that we're called to prepare the way for. And so asking Jesus questions of, hey, Jesus, who are you drawing to yourself that you want me to join you in doing that with? Which one of my neighbors are you inviting me to spend life with or coworkers or whoever else? Who are you asking me to actually talk to you about? And then following up on that. The Spirit knows who he's calling, because he's calling everybody, first of all. Jesus says, when the Son of Man's lift up, he draws all people to himself. So the Spirit knows what he's up to. But he wants to join with you. That's what he's always doing. So we're going to take a few seconds before we come to the table here. And we just, we just want to ask Jesus a question. And the question is simply this. Jesus, how are you asking me to prepare the way for you in my life? So let's pray. Jesus, you are the God who speaks. You say that your sheep hear your, your voice. Hebrews says, today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, listen. And so we want to give you space to speak. How are you asking us to prepare the way of the Lord for you? What do we need to do to prepare ourselves for you? Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.